Well, I'm glad to have the opportunity to be here and share some thoughts with you. I'm very pleased that Pastor Corey is recovering so well. Um, I'm reminded of a story of a number, a number of years ago, two young friends were walking home from Sunday school. And one of them went, turned in as they went down the street and they turned into, she turned into her home and went in and mom said, well, what did you learn today at Sunday school, honey? And she said, well, I learned, we learned God's first name. Oh, God's first name. She said, yeah, it's Andy. Andy? Yes, Andy walks with me, Andy talks with me, Andy tells me that I am his own. Well, her, other, her little friend her, went, continued on along the street, came to his house and had a very skeptical neighbor there, asked him, I see you have a Bible in your hands, and he said, well, yes, I do. He said, do you believe that stuff in the, that's in that book? And he said, oh, yes, I do, every word of it. She said, do you believe the part about Jesus turning the water into wine? He said, oh yes. That's one of my favorite stories. Because you see, sir, at our house, Jesus changed whiskey into furniture. And as we look at Paul's second chapter of Ephesians here, we find that that's what it's all about. It's all about changed lives. And so let me read that <clears throat> off of my uh, cell phone. I can't read without a magnifying glass from the Pew Bible. But this is the NIV, same version as in the Pew Bible. He says, as for you, and he's speaking to the church at Ephesian, at Ephesus, and it was a house church, there probably weren't very many people there. Some people think that the, uh, the letter was directed specifically to that group of believers. Others think that it was a circular letter. Others think that maybe it was both, that they sent it to Ephesus, and people at Ephesus spread it around the other parts of Asia Minor. So as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The, the spirit was now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who, all of us also lived among them at one time. And this is Paul, formerly Saul, who in other places tells us that he lived a flawless life as a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were committed to a very rigorous type of holiness, a legalistic type of holiness. But he includes himself with this group of pagans, now Christian believers in Ephesus. And he says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. He says this twice in this short, in these ten verses. By grace you have been saved. By grace we're saved. What is grace? 
Grace is unmerited favor. That's the textbook definition. But grace is, is a proactive expression of love to someone who doesn't deserve what they're receiving. By grace, we're, re we're saved. And God raised up Christ and, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What is it Paul says in chapter 13 of, of 1 Corinthians? Love is gentle, love is kind. Love loves that way in his kindness. Um, to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And what I'd like us to think about together today is the eighth verse here, by grace you have been saved through faith. And verse 10, it goes on and it says, For good works that have been prepared for us in advance to, to, to do. We learned, I learned, verse 8 as an evangelism text. By grace you're saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Very often that we stopped before we got to verse 9 and 10. What's the point of being saved? Are we supposed to be just like salt put in a, a salt shaker? This is probably a, an old metaphor. But no, we don't, we don't get put up on a shelf. It's something that God plans for us to do. When I looked at these 10 verses, <clears throat> it occurred to me that what Paul is saying is that salvation includes more than escaping divine judgment. And I found six ways, six ways that God has given us freedom. So the question that I have that I present to you is, what does Paul include in the concept of saved? For by grace you've been saved through faith. Well, first I find that we're we're set free from the living death of domination by the evil one. Beginning at verse 1, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. You followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We've been set free from that. We don't have to live that way anymore. By the grace of God and by the leading of the Holy Spirit, we're free from that. We're also free from the addictions that come along with being interest, focused on self-interest. There was a book a number of years ago that, that I read before I started following Jesus called Looking Out for Number One. Now that's very common in our culture. We look out for number one. The risk that goes along with that is that we acquire addictions. All of us lived, when he talks about following the cravings of the sinful nature. 
Another freedom we find is freedom from fear of divine judgment. He says, like the rest, we, again, Paul the Pharisee, Saul the Pharisee, we were by nature objects of wrath, but no more, because God in Christ Jesus has set us free. Well, we're also we're free from those three things, but we're also free to do three other things. We're free to share and participate in the life of God through our life in Christ. Paul comes back to this frequently. We're in Christ. Remember, Christ is part of the, of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is a member of that. We're in Christ. We have received that divine life through Christ into our human lives. And we participate. We become part of whatever it is that's going on in that dynamic of love in the, in the Godhead. He says, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We're also free to celebrate, celebrate the goodness of God. By grace you're saved, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. That's verse 4. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness in Christ Jesus. And this not of ourselves, verse 8. Now I want to stop, pause here for a moment. The incomparable riches of his grace. When I look back on my life, and I think some of us do this too, we think of ourselves as being very unworthy of all that God has done and continues to do and has promised to, to, to do uh, for us. We feel unworthy and it's hard to shake. Well, the bad news with that is that we're not worthy. None of us are. All of us have strayed away. All of us have done our own thing. All of us have offended God and our, um, we failed to love God, love our neighbor in some way or another. And I remember that I don't have to be worthy and I can't be worthy of God's love. God loves me because that's what he's all about. God is love. God loves each one of us. What we do doesn't change that. And in a moment, I want to look at an illustration. But I want to share with you something that, that I saw about my own life. God sometimes speaks to me in, pic, in mental pictures. And this particular day, I was looking back over my life, and I, all I could do was sigh and say, gee whiz, I wish I had started following Jesus earlier in my life. I was 35 when I found him. You can get into a lot of trouble between the ages of 15 and 35. And I did. And um, through the grace of God, I never went to jail, and I'm still alive. And then it, the path that I saw, it changed. It was covered with blood. Jesus' blood. 
And oh, okay, that's biblical. The sins are covered by the blood. And then it changed again, and I saw a profusion of wildflowers growing up out of the blood. And that's the theology of verse 7 explains that picture. Somehow, God's glory will be proclaimed forever through this part, these parts of my life that I wish had never happened. Somehow or another. I think to myself, well, the person that found the Lord early in life, maybe five or six years old, how's that work for them? Well, they, were, they have fruit. God is glorified when we bear fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. God gets glory from that. So those of you who think, well, I don't have much of a testimony because I don't even remember when I started following Jesus. Remember this. You've had a better life than people like me have had. And God gets glory out of the life that you have led. And if you have any questions about that, let's get together in a hundred years and compare notes. <laughs> we are free to participate in Christ's redemption of the world, the good works. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, what good works do we do? The ones that are ideally suited to who we are, to who God created us to be. And we're all a work in progress. We're all at different points of our life. We all have different situations, different, a, a unique set of relationships. Anything that I do or you do in obedience to prompting of the Holy Spirit will give him glory and will move God's plan for redeeming the universe ahead a little bit. You know, we were talking in Sunday school today about people that, that come and they want prayer. And they seem awfully somewhat casual about, well, I, I need prayer for this, that, or the other thing. And you realize, I don't have the ability to really deal with this person's issues. But in order to show them God's love, you pray for them. We pray for them. And, you, and in doing that, you give God something to work with. Every person that comes here, and, and I see people going out of the building with, they're loading up little wagons with food. And some people would say, oh, my goodness, what are they going to do with all that, all that food? It doesn't matter what they do with it. What matters is that this church, the Congregational Kitchen, has chosen to honor God by being, being obedient to the command to love your neighbor. What happens after it's given to them is not our problem. It gives God something to work with. There's, a, there's nothing that's too small to have a big impact in the kingdom of heaven. I studied John Wesley uh, when I was last in school, when I was uh, 
studying my master's degree. And when John Wesley was a child, his father was the parson at, uh, I guess the curate of the Episcopal Parish at Epworth. And his father was not a very well-liked individual. And one day the um, there was a fire in the parsonage. And little Johnny, or little Jack as they called him then, was in an upstairs bedroom during the fire. Well, two men went up to the, the bottom of the building. One man stood at the base of the, of the house. Another man stood on his shoulders and reached in, took John out of the room and brought him down safely. We don't know who that person is. How big an impact did that have on the, on the Methodist revival in England that began under the preaching of John Wesley in 1741? Huge impact. Little thing done for God, for his kingdom, had a huge impact um, on, the, on England. So if I were to summarize this using the, the metaphor of freedom, salvation is Father God's invitation to the abundant life of freedom and wholeness in the kingdom of his Son. By invitation, I believe that everyone gets an invitation. I believe that everyone makes a choice to attend the party or to skip it. It's entirely voluntary from beginning to end. How much we make of it is up to us. We can make much of it, we can make little of it. Most of the preaching I've heard on, on salvation is focused on, I think, a very narrow band of what salvation really is. Then I'm focused on how do I get to, go, to end up in heaven and avoid going somewhere else. But it's so much more than that. It's a quality of life. And so we read Psalm 1 today. And that also is, is showing us that there's a difference in the quality of life for people who follow God, who live according to his rules, if you want to call them rules. The life's a lot better than for people who don't. And I, my testimony is, personally, that's very true. I wondered as I was thinking about this, what does this salvation look like? You know, we live in a culture that is dominated by images. You, I don't know if you've ever noticed when you turn on a television that the focus, the perspective of the, the picture is changing every few seconds. They don't have a camera focused on one person for several minutes. It's changing second by second. We're an image-soaked culture. So what does salvation look like? Well, Jesus was a great storyteller, and he tells us a story that I think illustrates what salvation is all about. And if you want to read along, you'll find it in the Pew Bible, page 1624. It's called, we know it as the parable of the prodigal son. I think it's better described as the parable of the loving father or the parable of the two ungrateful sons. 
And as you recall the story, there's a, there's a farmer, apparently a fairly well-to-do farmer, at least middle-aged, who had two sons who didn't get along with each other, reading between the lines now. And the older brother appeared, appeared to be a very self-righteous and uh, individual, critical type of person. And the younger brother was more of a carefree sort of a person that really didn't like this business of farming. And so he wanted to go to the city. And, and I think that uh, he saw, he could, he knew about the, the, the 10 pagan cities across the Lake of Galilee. And he thought, I'd like to go there. I'd like to see what, what life like there is like. So he went to his father and he said, Dad, he says, uh, why don't you give me my share of the estate here? And um, it was one-third, the older brother got two-thirds. Then a few days later he went, and of course he blew it all. When he got a lot of money, he got a lot of friends. And when you don't have much money, you don't have any friends. And he learned that. And so we find him working, feeding pigs for a Gentile uh, pig, pig uh, farmer. And he was hungry, he wanted to eat the pig food. And he thought to himself, and the story says, he came to himself. This bright light finally came on. He hit, or as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, he hit rock bottom. He decided, this, is, this isn't working for me. If, if Dr. Phil had been there and said, how's it working for you? He would have said, no, it's not working for me at all. So then, he, but he knew his father. He knew what kind of a man his father was. And he says, you know, if I go back to my dad, he'll take me in. I can work for him. I can, I can be a hired hand on the farm. Even though I don't like that kind of work, I'll go back and I'll work for dad and I'll be much better off than I am here. See, he had faith. He had faith in his father because he knew his father father's character. He knew what his father was all about. And so he went and he, and he knew that, that the townspeople would be very unhappy to see him because basically he had insulted his father when he left. He said, you know, dad, I just don't want to wait until you die. So why don't you give me the money now? He dishonored his father. Honoring father and mother were very important to the Jews of that day. And he dishonored his father, but he went back. And on the way, you can read the story, he rehearsed his little speech. He said, I've sinned against you and against heaven. And he's right. He sinned against both. He, he violated the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And he sinned against his father. He insulted his father. He says, but make me one of your hired men. So he's walking back. Now here's the other brother after he's back. He's out working in the field, and, the, and he comes in, and in the meantime, Father has decided to have a party to celebrate the return of the younger brother. And so he gets offended by the fact that they were celebrating for the um, return of the, of the younger son. And so the father and the son have this contentious conversation of which we see part. Where, he said, where the critical older brother really condemns the, what the younger brother did, and probably with a great deal of, of um, truth to the matter. I'm sure what, what the younger brother did in the pagan 
a Gentile city was not something that a good Jewish boy would own up to in a synagogue. But he's very critical and condemned his brother. He says, this son of yours, you wasted your money, and you have to throw this big party for him. And the father said, oh, but we had to celebrate. Your brother was dead, and now he's alive. And so we have these two sons, both of whom had dishonored their father, both of whom were um, estranged from their father. One went to the far country physically, the other stayed home and went to the far country spiritually. Sometimes we lose track of the fact that somehow or another we all manage to get estranged from God. And um, as I look at the two young men here, I see that they are both separated. And one was critical and one was too much of a party person. It occurs to me that sins of the flesh are more obvious than sins of the spirit. The sins of the flesh are really obvious. They're the, they're the people that get high on the various kinds of things. People that are enslaved by, by drugs or, or, or pornography or, or whatever. We can see that it's more obvious. Sins of the spirit, however, we can dress up and make look good. And I think we followers of Jesus, we're more apt to fall into the traps that the devil sets for us to be critical of other people, to be judgmental. Um, sins of the flesh mis misuse and deaden God's gift of pleasure. That's what, that's what the people involved in that lifestyle want. They want pleasure. Why do, they want, why do we want pleasure? I think it's because what we really want is love. But we can't get that because we're not good enough. Or we're not the right class or night clothes or the right whatever. And so we can't get love. Or maybe we've had parents that had really difficulties showing love to us as children. Maybe something else happened in our lives that really convinced us that we can't be loved. What happens often, I think, is that people will say, well, I can feel good by doing fill in the blank. So sins of the flesh are obvious, I think. The causes of them are not. And as believers, we're very tempted to not be interested in why our brother or our sister got into this predicament. Um, sins of the spirit misuse God's gift of the ability to organize human life. And what they do to us, if we, if we indulge them, is they choke off our ability to experience joy. Now let me, let me uh, share some thoughts I was thinking about as I was reflecting on this message. We have to have rules. Rules are what we wrap our lives 
wrap around our lives. I have a rule for myself that I always do everything the same way. And there's a reason for that. Because if I don't do it the same way, it might not turn out very well. If I don't go in the, in the bathroom and I line up my pills, I may miss them. A rule I have for myself is I try to be on time. Maybe a little bit early. Another rule I, I have for myself is that when I'm driving and I get to a, a, a four-way stop and there's somebody else there, I let the other person go first. And for the most part, these rules work pretty well for me. Now, sometimes people have different sets of rules and they, somehow or another, they find each other and they don't discover that they have different sets of rules. So let's say, for example, you are a person who gets your W-2 in January and by the middle of February, all the paperwork has been filled out and sent in to the IRS or sent by electronically or whatever. Now what happens if you marry a person who habitually is in line at the post office on April 15th? I'd say there's going to be some conflict. Or let's say that you like to drive on the top half of the tank of your car and you get married to a person who never notices that it needs gas until the little white thing starts blinking on the dashboard. Again, conflict. So we, ha we have to accept the fact that we need rules. We need to accept the fact that um, we're going to have some conflict and that we're going to need to negotiate on our rules. But the main point here in this story is not the older son or the younger son. The main point is the father. The father was looking for him to come back. Father God's love for us includes honoring our decisions even though he knows that our decisions are going to diminish the quality of our lives. He let the young fellow go to the, the, the Gentile city. He honored that decision. He honors our decisions. Sometimes we make pretty, pretty good decisions, sometimes not so hot. But he honors them. And if you look back on your life as I have done over mine, I, I, I find that he has not only honored my decisions, but he's buffered and protected me from the most severe consequences of some of the dumb things that I've done in my life. That's the love of God at work. Um, notice that he pleads with the older brother. He doesn't command him. He could have said to, to his son, elder son, you get your body in here and put a smile on your face because I'm telling you to do that. Could have done that. In Jewish culture, he could have, could have made it stick, but he didn't. He pleaded with him, don't you understand, this brother of yours was lost, and now he's back. He was dead, he's, now he's alive. He set aside his dignity. Jesus' story says, and I sometimes wonder if maybe this didn't actually happen there in Galilee. 
but it's a parable, it's a story. He says the older, the father ran to meet the younger son. Now, if you think he's at least middle aged, as I, and I do, and he's wearing a long robe, in order to run, he'd have to lift up his 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 robe to run. Very undignified. He exposed himself to the ridicule of the townspeople. They're like, hey, did you hear what old Sam up there on the hill's doing with a deadbeat kid of his? <laughs> you won't believe this. And the, the rumor mill, the gossip mill, was turned on full blast. And he restored him to his status of son, heir. Now he told the older brother, now you. You own everything I own because the younger son has gotten his share. So there's a certain measure of justice here. There is a consequence for what the younger son did. He blew his inheritance. It's gone. He's not getting it there. And he has to live with his brother when his father dies. He may have to go out and look for a job somewhere else. But that's not the point. The point is this is what Father God is like. Father God is the loving person who rejoices when we come to him, who delights in our company. Now Paul says we're saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. The younger son's faith was in the character of his father. So what does that say to us here in 2019 in Alaga. Where do I fit in this story? <clears throat> Maybe I'm still in the far country and need to decide to come home. We have that decision. We have the freedom to make that decision. Um, I shared this morning a, a story I heard at the Council Gospel Mission of a young man who was in, sleeping on a mat in what they call the inasmuch house. It was for people who didn't want to participate in the rehab programs. And by the time I heard him, he was in a rehab program. And he said one night he was there and he hit rock bottom. And uh, he, he was a drug addict and he didn't have any reason to live. He'd been come up, raised up in the church. And he said, I'm not going to do this anymore. So the next day he signed up for the rehab program. We have that choice. We have that freedom. No matter how bad our circumstances are, we have the freedom. We can choose to go home. Or maybe I am home, but I really don't know my father very well. Maybe the only exposure we have to the truth about God's love is here on Sunday morning. Well, it's great to be here, and it's a good thing to do, and a lot, a lot of changes can happen in a service like this. Worship is important. We need to worship. That's, that's affirming the, the right relationship that we have with God. Or maybe I know the Father well, but I don't seem to have anything to do for him. You know, we all have this desire to be significant somehow or another, in some little way or another, to be significant. Um, let me read to you a, uh, 
Uh, this is from the, my, the Upper Room Devotional. And this is for today. It's by a, a woman in Saskatchewan, Canada. She says, I love to rock my babies and grandbabies. My youngest daughter always enjoyed snuggling in my arms. With her many health concerns, she often felt ill and needed comfort. I would wrap her in her favorite blanket, rock her and softly sing, Jesus loved me, and she would settle down contentedly. And then she did the same thing for her grandson, Nathaniel. Kind of like the guy standing on another guy's shoulders, bringing Jack out of the burning parsonage. Doesn't seem like much, but we don't really know. You do have something to do, ideally suited to your personality, your situation, your circumstances. It's there. God's prepared it for you. So, so how do you how do you connect with this? The question that I pose to all of us today is, how then shall we live? And the title is actually taken from a study that Francis Schaeffer did of Western civilization. And it's available in book form and video form. But how, how then shall we live? Well, I suggest to you that we live in the presence of Father God. How do you do that? Well, you have to, have to somehow or another get him in your head. How do you do that? Spend time alone with him. Certainly come to church and worship. Spend time alone with him. Most of us have this invention of the devil known as smartphone. But if you look in the Play Store, you will find Bibles and you will find devotionals. One that I've been following for quite some time is by John Henry Jowett, My Daily Meditation. John Henry Jowett was a congregational minister who ministered in London and New York City around the turn of the century, and he died in 1924. Download a devotional. He, he had your phone with you. He had standing in line at, at the grocery store. You can look it up. You got several different Bible translations. You have to, have to wait at the at the doctor's office or somewhere else. You can you can look up a verse. Um, what to read? Well, read whatever the Lord leads you to read. Sometimes I'll say, "What well, Lord? What, well, Lord, what do you want to show me today?" And I'll think of something and I look at. It. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are are songs of worship. Read the Gospels. But don't just read it like you would read a newspaper. Read it and think about it. Let it speak to you. Let, let it engage your imagination. I like this picture of the father pulling up his, his, his uh, robe and running to the, to, the, uh, to the sun through the town, enduring the ridicule of his neighbors. Let your imagination work on a little bit. How about um, small group ministry? I think one of the really encouraging things I saw here last year was Karen's um, Bible study for women. And I think that's so beneficial. Um, maybe you, if you can teach, maybe you can find someone who likes to host. Have a few people over. It doesn't have to be a lot of people. Two or three or four people makes a wonderful group. If you talk about scripture, Talk about what's, what God's doing in your life. 
It'll help you know the Father's love better. And watch what God is already doing in your life. The, the coincidences, the answers to prayer. Um, I think all of us have had experience, experience with answers to prayer. But make a point of getting to know Andy. How then shall we live? We should live in a way that will help us get to know Andy better. Now I want to close the sermon with a, with a, a song from Vineyard Music. I discovered Vineyard back in the late 1990s. This is one that I like. Perhaps you will like it too. Let it be your prayer uh, today. God will hear your prayer. God will answer your prayer. So go ahead and play this. It's track five. Thank you. 